Well, we're continuing this week in our series called The Weary World Rejoices. And what we've been doing is taking a look at the Christmas story and the unique hope it brings, this, this birth of a baby Jesus and the joy that is found within it. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at Christmas as told by the Gospel of John. And you, if you know the Gospels at all, you might be thinking, wait a second, John, he doesn't really tell the Christmas story. I mean, Matthew and Luke, they, they're the ones who tell the events of Jesus' birth, about Mary and Joseph and going to Bethlehem. But John tells a different kind of Christmas story. John is, is going to describe not what happened, but what those things mean. And so before we get into it, I just want to pray. Lord, thank you for, for revealing yourself to us. I pray that you would just do even more of that this morning that you would reveal yourself to us in your word as you are. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So John, he begins his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, and he says something very interesting. He begins and he says, in the beginning. And right away, if you were a Jew Jewish reader, uh, you, you would, this would catch your attention. John, here, he, he start, starts his gospel in the same exact way that the Bible itself begins in Genesis. So Genesis 1-1 begins with, in the beginning, God created. And it talks about all of creation, how God creates the heavens and the earth, and how he, he inhabits it with uh, animals and humans, and he creates this garden, and he puts Adam and Eve in it, and it's good. And everything is as it should be, and there is shalom in the world. And then Genesis 3 happens, which is known as the fall, right? Um, the serpent convinces Eve and Adam to eat of the, the fruit of the tree that they're not supposed to eat from, and suddenly everything begins to fall apart. There's shame and brokenness with with their relationship with God, and there's brokenness with their relationship with each other, and there's brokenness with their relationship in the earth. And as God comes to, to fix what is broken, he says something to the serpent in Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, this is the, the first prophecy, the first promise of God for a Savior in the Bible. I mean, the dust has not even settled yet from the fall, and God intervenes and says, I'm going to fix it. He says, there's going to be a man born of a woman, and he is going to crush your head, Satan. There's a plan already in place. There's a Savior coming. And so when John starts his gospel in John 1, what he is saying is that this is the news, this, this news that I'm telling you is the news about the one we've been waiting for since Genesis 3. It's from the beginning. It's, it's the one who we've been waiting for for all of creation since the beginning of time. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. He calls Jesus the Word. Why does he do that? Well, um, if you think about it, that someone's words are actually really the clearest expression of who they are. Uh, let me give you an example of that. If you were to see someone in the supermarket, right, 
and uh, they were buying different foods in the supermarket, and let's say you watched them for a little bit. You could infer some things about them. You could infer maybe what kinds of food they like and uh, maybe how many people are in their household. You can infer some things about them. But let's say you saw them buy coffee and tea. And I asked you, hey, what do they like better, coffee or tea? You wouldn't really know, right? What would you have to do? You would have to go up to that person. You'd have to talk to them. You'd have to ask them, hey, what do you prefer? Do you prefer coffee or tea? I see you're, you're buying both, so what do you like? And they might say, okay, I, I don't really like coffee. I buy it for my husband. I'm a tea drinker. And so you get a clearer picture of who they are by their words than just observing them. You can, you can take in some things by just observing them, but in their words, you get a clear picture of who they are. And the truth is, you don't really know someone until you have spoken to them. Um, you know, I play fantasy football, and I'm terrible at it. And uh, the guys on my fantasy football teams, I could tell you a lot of stats about them. I could tell you about how many touchdowns um, Tom Brady throws. I could tell you about how many catches uh, Antonio Brown had this year, which was not very many. Um, but I don't know those guys, right? I know things about them, but I don't know them because I've never talked to them. If I haven't talked to someone, I can't truly know them. And so in order to know God, you have to know his word. And so what John is saying here is that the way to know God is Jesus. Jesus is the true expression of who God is. There's no clearer uh, way to know him than through his word, who is Jesus. He continues on after uh, that first verse, and then he gets to verse 14, continuing to talk about Jesus. And, and this is where I think he gives us the clearest explanation of Christmas that there is in the Bible. In, in verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, uh, he begins with in the beginning to take people back to say, you know how we've been waiting? We've been waiting since the very beginning, since Genesis 3, from the beginning of time. We've been waiting for this promised Messiah, this, this one who would come and crush the, the serpent's head. And in John, in John 1.14, what he's saying is the wait is over. Advent is, the meaning of Advent is the coming of an important person or an or event. And, and so what the Advent season is then is this waiting for what is to come, this important person or event who's going to show up. And God's people since Genesis 3 have been in a season of waiting, a season of Advent. And John here is saying that the wait is over. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, Earth was able to experience three decades, 30 years of Emmanuel, God with us in Jesus. When he lived on our planet, walking, talking, real life, God with us. And on Good Friday, Jesus was murdered by his own people. And three days later, just as he prophesied, he was raised from the dead and came back to life and fulfilled what he said he was going to do. And finally, he ascends into heaven and returns to the, to the right hand of God, where he now reigns as king. 
And so we are in the Advent season where we remember the first Advent. We're in this Advent season, this Christmas season, right, where we remember the first Advent. But also, year-round, we are in this second Advent season, this waiting for the return of the King. The truth is, most of us hate waiting, right? Like, there's nothing worse than waiting for 20, 30 minutes at the doctor's office or being in traffic or being on hold on the phone. I, I, I don't know about the, the music that they play when you're on hold on the phone, but it, it's like it's meant to make you a little angry, right? Like, the, at this point, we've gotten so bad at waiting that, you know, when Netflix is buffering for 10 seconds, we begin to panic, we begin to freak out. I mean, we're getting worse and worse at waiting in our society. I mean, now we've been waiting for a global pandemic to end for quite a long time, and we think it's right around the corner, and it just seems to go on and on and on, and we hate the waiting. I looked up some of the longest waiting times, and when the Frozen ride at Disneyland first opened, which is not open anymore, um, but when it first opened, the, the wait for that ride was three hundred minutes long. Doing the math in my head, that's about, that's exactly five hours. A five hour wait to get on a ride that lasts maybe a minute and a half. That's crazy. But people do it, right? One of the longest waits that there is is for Green Bay season tickets. If you get put in line to buy Green Bay season tickets, it takes 30 years before it's actually your turn to buy season tickets. But people wait. I remember when I was in college, uh, this Chick-fil-A opened down in Tucson. And we found out that if you were one of the first 100 people to be at this Chick-fil-A when it opened, you got 52 free meal coupons for Chick-fil-A. And as a college student, that was literally life-changing. I mean, 52 free meal, that, that was life-changing as a college student. And so we got down there uh, the day before it opened, and the line had already begun. And we camped out. We waited all night long for Chick-fil-A to open in the morning. And uh, I ended up getting my 52 free meal tickets. So it was worth the wait. And, and here's the thing. We wait for things that we believe are worth it. And so we're in this season now of waiting again. But we don't just wait. God tells us that we are to prepare in our waiting. See, James 5, verses 7 and 8 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, waiting doesn't mean we do nothing. In fact, it actually means we have a new focus in our living. See, farmers are very, very busy. They plant their crops. They water their crops. They do everything they can to get their crops to grow. But at some point, they have to wait. And I believe that the doctrine of the incarnation, what, what John just talked about, that the word became flesh, prepares us to wait well. And so what are some of these practical implications of John chapter 1, 14? What, what does it teach us? What does this uh, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us show us? The first thing it teaches us 
is that we can have infinite comfort in the face of suffering. When things are bad, we ought to be the people with, that are comforted the most. You see, he says the word became flesh. It comes, this, this word, the incarnation, it comes from this word incarne. And, and if you were to look up carne, what would you find? It's, it's the word for meat, right? And so when he's saying God became flesh, what he's saying is God became meat, like, like you and I are made of meat. So he said, God became meat. And he does this on purpose. He doesn't just say God is becoming a person. He says, God is becoming flesh and blood because flesh and blood is killable. He's saying the immortal has become mortal. God was made killable. He says this on purpose because one of the biggest questions that we tend to have in the midst of suffering is why is this bad thing happening to me? When I'm in the depths of despair, when I am am just going through it, we tend to ask, why are you letting this happen? The truth is, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that when we look at the incarnation, when we look at the cross, we can be sure of what the answer isn't. The answer can't be that God doesn't care. It can't be that God is indifferent to our suffering and to our pain. In fact, he takes our misery and our suffering and our pain so seriously that he takes it upon himself and takes it to the cross. He was made killable because he cared that much. You see, Emmanuel, God with us, is truly most with us in our suffering because he was the God who suffered. And and honestly, even more than that, Think about this. If, if you're going through something, something really difficult, really hard, let's say you, you just recently lost a family member, someone close to you, a mom or a dad or whatever it may be. And if someone comes up to you in that moment and says, hey, uh, you know, this is going to pass, and, and think about um, all the good things you might immediately get a little bit upset, right? You might think, well, you don't even know what this feels like. You don't know what I'm going through. But if it's someone who also has recently lost a loved one, it takes on a different meaning. It takes on a different form. Instead of you have no idea, it actually brings hope because you can see, hey, you suffered, you went through it, and you're telling me I can too. You see, because the word became flesh, because God went through it, we can be comforted by him in a different way than had he never gone through it in the first place. Have you been betrayed? So has God. Have you been abandoned by the ones you love? So has God. Have you felt like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, those are the very words that Jesus speaks on the cross. He cares. He's been through it. He's the wonderful counselor. So go to him in your sufferings and in your hardship. The second thing that the incarnation shows us, that it reveals to us, is it it gives us a calling, a calling to do likewise, a calling to come off of our throne. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 say, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus 
who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Paul here, he's saying that we ought to have the same mindset that God had, that Jesus had in the incarnation, in the word becoming flesh. And what did God do in becoming flesh? He made himself vulnerable. He he lowered himself. He humbled himself. And so the incarnation is really also a call to us to become vulnerable, a call to us to get off of our throne, a call to us to lower ourselves, to serve, to humble ourselves, to get involved. You know, there's this story of a lady. Um, You know, this is years and years ago who was walking home from work one day when she was attacked in the street just outside of her apartment building. And um, this, this was an interesting case. It was actually studied by a lot of people. But um, they say that she was attacked so close to her apartment building that many people in the apartment building could hear her cries, could hear her screams and her panic. And um, she ended up dying. And so they did this investigation. Why, why did no one come down to help? What was going on here? You know, there's some thought that there was this bystander effect thing that was happening. Well, someone else will go help. Uh, but what was under it all was this feeling that people didn't want to get involved. Because in coming down out of the apartment building and coming down to her, they would have made themselves vulnerable. They could have gotten themselves into trouble. You know, I didn't want to make her trouble my trouble. But we have a God who comes down, who makes our trouble his trouble. And what he calls us to is to have that same mind, to have that incarnational mindset that that we make others' trouble our trouble. We bear one another's burdens. We, we take on the struggles of other people. We ought to be uncomfortable with being so comfortable as Christians. That's what Christmas teaches us, that God counted it, equality with God, not something to be held on to, but that he made himself low, that he gave it up. We should give up our comfort. We, what God is calling us to is to give up all of it, to go and to serve and to love in ways that are sacrificial because that's what he did. Finally, the incarnation gives us a hope that all will be put right. So it says that the word became flesh and then made his dwelling among us. Now, if that was to be translated directly, what it would say is the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Why is that important? Well, let's go back to Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, the fall happens, right? And our relationship with God is fractured. Our relationship with each other is fractured. Our relationship with the world is broken. And so eventually we, we are forced to leave Eden. And at the gates of Eden, it says that God puts this cherubim, this, this angel, and a flaming sword as, as to guard the gates, right? This, this idea that there's a separation now. We can't come back in. 
There's the brokenness, we're out. Fast forward to Moses. Now Moses, he would go meet with God, and, and he wanted to actually see, be, be in face-to-face presence with the glory of God. And God said, well, we can't do that. That's too much. It'll kill you. Right? I, I, it, my glory needs to be concealed from you. And so they build this tabernacle. It's a place where they house God's glory. And behind, in this tabernacle, was this holy of holies. And that's where God's glory resided. And outside the holy of holies was this veil, this, this shield, this uh, curtain. And on the curtain is placed a cherubim and a flaming sword. And, and the idea here is that this, this tabernacle was the place where God's glory was shielded from his people. Well, when John says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, when he tabernacled among us, what he's saying is that Jesus is the true tabernacle. What he's saying is that the Holy of Holies, this tabernacle, this veil that was there, it it was meant to, to conceal God's glory from us. But Jesus is here to reveal God's glory to us. Everything that was broken in Genesis 3, uh, everything that we couldn't come into face-to-face contact with uh, in, in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Isaiah, all, all these things that were broken are now being made right in Jesus. That's why on the cross it says that the veil is torn from top to bottom because this, this separation is gone. All things are being made right, renewed in Jesus, reconciled in Jesus. See, there's a confidence in knowing the end of the story. The weary world rejoices because God keeps his promises. You know, The Lord of the Rings uh, is one of my favorite movies. I love it. And in it, the climax of the trilogy of the movies, Samwise Gamgee realizes that his friend Gandalf is not dead as he thought, but is actually alive. And he says this, he cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer to that for Christians is yes. That in, in Jesus Christ, all the suffering, all the struggle, all everything that is broken will be made new again. C.S. Lewis says this. He says that they say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. See, this is the ultimate defeat of evil and suffering. And it's ended so radically, vanquished so completely that what has happened here and now will only serve to make the glory greater in the end. In the second Advent season, let us take the word become flesh into our hearts, transforming how we suffer. Let the incarnation convict us to come off our thrones, to lay down our lives for one another, and let our weary souls rejoice because we have found an infallible hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you 
for loving us. Thank you for showing us who you are. For the incarnation, for becoming killable for us. Thank you that you took the form of a child, of a baby. That you loved us so much that you were willing to suffer for us. Lord, I pray that that would give us the strength to live in, in, in the same way, with the same mindset as you. That we would wait here on earth differently because of your incarnation. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.